Hello, and welcome back to Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise. If you haven't already figured this out, this podcast is more of an audiobook than a podcast, which means that if this is the first chapter you're hearing, you'll probably want to pause the story and start over from the beginning, listening through chronologically. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell your friends about it, or even leave a short review. I'm not making any money off of this. I'm not saying this because I want to sell more copies. I'm saying this because I think more people would enjoy it if uh, if you think so, too. Anyway, thank you, you wonderful human you, for being here with me. Now let's get on with it. Lifegasm Book 1, Marshall's Promise, Chapter 20, Manhattan, Manhattan, Manhattan. One's duty is to feel what is great, cherish the beautiful, and to not accept the conventions of society with the ignominy that it imposes upon us. Gustave Flaubert from Madame Bovary. Don't forget to stay hydrated, baby girl, Big Frank reminded me as I boarded my flight back, back east. Water is life, I told him, then hopped on the plane to Newark. I'd only been in Le Grand a few weeks when it became clear my path would take me back to New York, and here's how it all happened. Once I'd resettled into the Oak Street bungalow, I cast out the usual threads in the usual directions. Where do I need to be and what do I need to be doing? I began to research divinity schools. Did Buddha have a master's in divinity, my deepest heart probed, or Jesus? No, I thought back, but that doesn't mean it won't be easier for me to do my work if I earn one. Online degrees were a dime a dozen, especially those with religious affiliations, so it would have been easy-peasy if I self-identified as Christian. But because I was unwilling to earn a degree from a Christian-based institution or one that essentially aligned with Christianity, my 4,000 options dwindled to approximately four, and two of the four were Harvard and Yale. So mere acceptance was already looking like a potential pitfall. Then, assuming I could jump the hurdles of getting into these schools, the shortest program would take over two years and require a semester or two of prerequisites. Then, assuming I could figure out how to disappear into academia for three years, there was the matter of tuition. Three years of my life and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt? Ugh, no thanks. Not this time around. I thought for a moment, then googled, Meditation Guide Credentials, U.S. Now, as I write this, I know that Google's algorithm provides search results that are tailored to the user, so the fact that they knew I'd recently shown interest in New York City may have influenced the search results. Given this tidbit, it will perhaps come as no surprise that the first meditation teacher training on Google's list was from Mindful, with two locations in Manhattan— as recently featured in the Time magazine I so casually perused at Madeline's house. But I have to say, at the time, seeing that familiar name felt like a sign. Mindful? I said out loud, with my mouth. No way! I know that place! Thank you, universe! Now I feel like I should also thank the Google engineers. The program was a five-month course, running from January through May. As I read on, I discovered that one of the only prerequisites for application was attendance in at least five mindful classes. This, they assured us, wasn't a ploy to drum up business. There was a culture within every meditation center, and they wanted applicants to be sure they felt comfortable within the mindful family. 
In my own self-guided tour of dozens of meditation centers, I'd felt for myself the unique vibes of each venue. I liked that Mindful was, forgive me, mindful of the possibility that their energy may not harmonize with the energy of all applicants. It was early December at the time, and if Big Frank would let me stay with him the week before Christmas, I could feasibly attend all five classes within that week without having to rearrange a single hour of parenting time. You want to come back already? Big Frank said over the phone, smiling audibly through the ether. I knew you had a good time and everything. I just didn't know you couldn't live without me. Very funny, Big Frank, I said, but this is serious. It's basically job-related. Of course you can come stay. You're always welcome, he said. You know I'm fucking with you. He growled as he laughed. But I'm also going to fuck you. Yes, please, I said. The timing of the training and Big Frank's willingness to shelter me felt so serendipitous that I took it as a golden fish from the golden ocean. The last problem to solve was airfare. I checked in with Southwest because, while I did not have frequent flyer miles with barrel-chested dominant lovers, I did have actual air miles with my favorite little airline. I entered some dates and held my breath. I hoped that cost wouldn't be the prohibitive factor. The right thing will unfold, my deepest heart reminded me. I know, my brain said, again. As it happened, I had just enough points to cover the trip in full. I know this, quote, free ticket was all psychology, and that over time I'd given the credit card company much more than the cost of the airfare. But the fact of the matter was that I wouldn't be adding any debt to my swelling balance, and I was grateful to feel like I was paying $35 to get to New York and back. That was just the, you know taxes and fees. If someone ever asks you how you can afford to travel when your bank account holds minimum funds, tell them your manifestation currency is infinite. I checked in with William, agreed to a parenting schedule throughout December that worked for everybody, and filled him in on the timeline and details of the training program. So it's a five-month course, I said, somewhat nervously. I felt like I was giving an elevator pitch which I know is a pretty long time to be away from the kids, but I imagine I'll be able to get away at least one weekend just to be able to see them. And besides, I haven't even been accepted yet. I wouldn't worry about that part, he chided. You know, William, we've done a really good job at working together, haven't we? I asked. Yeah, we really have. Thanks again for watching the boys while I had band practice last week. Of course, I said, that's how we do. I just want to say, I know our original agreement was for me to have the boys every other weekend, and I've never gone back on that promise unless or until I've worked it out with you first. And I'm proud of that. So I want you to know that I won't go to New York, assuming I'm even accepted into the program, if I don't have your blessing. I paused. But I hope I can have your blessing, because I feel like I need to do this. William thought for a moment before he spoke. Evie... I know you've sacrificed a lot by not going to grad school earlier in your life, and I know that that was also you could take care of our family and our kids. Honestly, I've been half expecting you to announce that you're going to be gone for two years to get a graduate degree. Five months seems pretty doable, comparatively. And working with you on this seems like the least I can do. I pretty much owe it to you. He paused, then continued, It's not going to be easy, but I don't want to tell you no, that you can't go or that I can't handle the boys without you. Because what kind of person would that make me? William, I said, you are a really good person. If we weren't getting divorced, we should totally get married. <laughs> so that's how I came to be flying to New York for a week-long stay with co-parenting sorted, housing covered, 
and a schedule of five mindful courses already reserved and penciled out in my calendar. The night I arrived, as hydrated as one can be after flying through space in an artificially ventilated metal canister, Big Frank took me to a new-to-me sex club in the city. I was no longer a sex club virgin, so I plunged into the night like a submarine, escorted by my Silver Fox personal bouncer, full steam ahead. The formal entrance to the new club was under renovation, so we were guided by the doorman through a series of winding basement hallways. The approach called to mind Prohibition-era speakeasies, which meant that even the prologue of this evening was sexy. We arrived at a nondescript black door marked Private Party. Clever, huh? Big Frank said. So if some chump stumbles up here by accident, he won't be so lucky as to stumble all the way in. We entered the private party, and found ourselves in a small, velvety anteroom that looked a great deal like a miniature version of the gentleman's club in Denver. A lingerie-clad woman waited behind a desk, and a beefy fellow, fully dressed, stood between us and the inner entrance. The woman asked if we were members, and Frank gave her his name and credit card. "'Welcome back, Big Frank,' the young lady said. The bouncer swung open the door, and Big Frank and I stepped into a different dimension." The large front room consisted of a medium-sized dance floor, a BYOB bar with a bartender in big quotations, a DJ booth, and a lot of mirrors. The ambience was clean and swanky. On the dance floor, there was a pole and a mirrored ceiling. Potted plants and fresh flowers speckled the scenery and infused the space with the vibrant, vital energy that living things do. There was a black leather couch against the right wall, and tucked away near the couch, an open doorway to a more private playroom. Let me show you around, said Big Frank. This is just the front of the house. He brought me through a doorway off to the left to a carpeted room with one of those circular velvet benches that have a large velvety column in the middle. Is there even a word for that kind of furniture? Embedded on the far wall was an extra-long Hollywood-style vanity, The counter was lined with breath mints, mouthwash, condoms, lotion, lubricant, and sample-sized lip balms. Next to the vanity, and directly across from it, were two walls lined with lockers. Through a corridor past these lockers, Big Frank explained to me, were half a dozen playrooms. You have to be naked if you want to go back, he said, but this gentleman will give you a robe if you prefer. Big Frank indicated the attendant standing by the lockers, who nodded. I liked this naked-only policy. It was an agreement to a shared, equivalent level of vulnerability. We could still all play the exhibitionist-slash-voyeur game, but the dynamic of the watchers and the watched would be more balanced than, for example, the nine masturbating vultures from my first sex club experience. There were showers and bathrooms through a hallway opposite the velvety, columned, circular bench, which should definitely have a more abbreviated name— and there was a small exit that led to a narrow outdoor patio for smoking. Holy shit, I said, this place is amazing. Just wait till we go back to the playrooms, Big Frank said mischievously. We had a team huddle about what to do first. I felt most attracted to the dance floor, but Big Frank wanted to go check out the playrooms. Insurmountable problem? Not at all. We split up and agreed to find each other soonish. The dance floor was already hopping, and I joined the throng of bodies, letting my own body join the singular, pulsing organism that a group of humans can sometimes become. 
I let the music lead my body and danced partnerless, unabashed, for a few songs. This was heaven on earth. I was extra high on life. Within a few minutes, I was tentatively, respectfully approached by an attractive, dirty dancing couple. They were glamorous, well-dressed, and had clear, glowing skin that looked professionally cared for. I let my intimidation give way to something more natural. Attraction. We flirted with our eyes and let our bodies follow the magnetic pull toward each other. We laughed and grinded and vaguely introduced ourselves. Eventually, Big Frank came for me and invited me to join him. I encouraged the couple to find us later. In the dressing room, I undressed, put my clothes in a locker, accepted a white, silky robe from the attendant, and reached for a breath mint from the vanity. Don't you dare, said Big Frank. Altoids and blowjobs do not mix. I laughed, backed away from the mints, and followed Big Frank through a labyrinthine path of consensual pleasure on display. After catching a glimpse of the super hot but somewhat crowded smaller rooms, I suggested we get things started in the larger, less densely occupied room. Let's make people want to come join us, I said. And so we did. And so they did. At one point, Big Frank pulled out of me such an animalistic, uninhibited, unmuted, and unashamed orgasm that I swear to you this really happened. The rest of the room stopped what they were doing to applaud and cheer. Gasm-gasm! Later on, the couple from the dance floor did end up finding us. The woman, who was as flawless to behold naked as she was to behold clothed, lay down next to me. She stroked my hair and said, enchanted, you're so beautiful. It was obvious to me, in a way that had been growing clearer over the last few months, that the more one polishes one's soul, the cleaner the mirror one becomes for others. Some people don't like what they see, and instead of doing their own work, they throw shit at the mirror. And some people are so enamored by recognizing their golden, glowing selves in another that they truly feel bowled over with beauty. I could feel this happening now, with this gorgeous and utterly vulnerable woman before me. I said to her, You're so beautiful. By the end of the night, I was as blissed out as I'd ever been. What more could one want from this tangled, temporary life? Finally, the club employees announced it was closing time, so we got dressed in slow motion, limbs quivering, hearts happy. We stumbled out to the front dance floor, weak and exhausted, where there was now a buffet table filled with white cake and fresh fruit. Was it all of our birthdays? Sure, why not? The DJ was spinning a few final songs, so I asked that he play a Dient word track called Daddy. He hadn't heard of the band, but after the song, he came over to thank me for introducing him. I have a feeling they're going to be part of my regular mix from now on, he said. What's that now, universe? The woman who had none of her own music six months ago was now forging connections between professional DJs and sexy, weirdo South African bands? Blessed be! I was under no delusion that I would ever be the most hip musical human in a room, but I was feeling pretty fucking cool at that moment. I devoured a plate full of white cake and chocolate strawberries, but as the sugar gummed up my blood, I decided that what I really wanted was a New York slice. Big Frank and I surfaced in the early morning air of the Big Apple. Do you know if there's a pizza place around here? I asked. We looked right, 
we looked left. Down the street, less than a block away, was the glowing sign for pizza by the slice. Ask and ye shall receive, I said as we made our way toward my craving. Ask and ye shall motherfucking receive. The next day, Big Frank fed me properly. His fried eggs were more slippery and smooth than I'd known the laws of physics would allow. You feel good, baby girl? he asked, looking deeply into my eyes, his own twinkling and full of affection. I nodded as I bit into a cheese-encrusted roasted potato. That's what I like to see, he continued. You've got food in your belly and love in your heart. You know, my friends all joke that if I ever want a lady to leave my house, I must never, under any circumstances, cook for her. But you cooked for me last time, I reminded him. And see, he said, here you are. (laughs) And you're sure it's okay for me to come back and stay for five whole months? Frank, that's a pretty long time. Well, someone I like a lot says she doesn't say things she doesn't mean, and she should know that I don't either. I thanked him for taking such good care of me, past, present, and future, readied myself for the outside world, then caught the Manhattan-bound bus a few blocks from Big Frank's apartment. Three cheers for public transit, I thought as I watched the city ascend before me. In keeping with Mindful's teacher training application policy, I'd reserved spaces for multiple meditation classes throughout the week, as well as an interview with Lodro, one of the co-founders of the organization. I'd done some internet research before my arrival and discovered he was one of those Westerners who, having grown up in a Buddhist household, began meditating when he was six. Oh boy, I thought, with wavering expectations. On one hand, I predicted Lodro would be one of those meditation snobs who looked down his nose at those of us who hadn't been meditating since kindergarten— On the other hand, I imagined him to be a progressive hipster who had long ago recognized separation as an illusion and who would welcome all of us glorious weirdos to his meditation empire. In short, I trusted that Lodro was exactly who he needed to be. I walked from the bus depot to the mindful center on the Upper East Side. The facility was bright and minimal, and the young woman at the front showed me the wares, where to leave my shoes once the class started, where to wait in the meantime, and where to find the complimentary beverages. In the waiting area, arranged like an elegant, high-end living room, I helped myself to hot tea and noted that there wasn't much buzz or interaction between the few people milling about. No matter, I thought. These are only the first few minutes I've spent here. Maybe the social engagement factor will ramp up with time. I smiled at a fellow on the couch across from me. He smiled briefly, then returned to his magazine. Finally, it was time to start class. As we de-shooed, which is still better than de-planed, and settled in, the teacher asked how we were all coping with the cold. There was a general hubbub of groans as the temperature had indeed dipped to below freezing recently, but that specific day wasn't particularly arctic, and I was surprised at how comfortable everyone seemed in taking such a dispassionately negative tone. I'm just grateful to have a roof over my head, I answered vaguely to the room. We should be asking the people who don't have shelter how they're handling the cold. The teacher nodded in agreement, mildly chastised. You're right, she said. It could be worse. This, for the record, is not my favorite expression of gratitude, but I took her point. As we began our guided meditation in earnest, I settled in with an open mind and an open heart. But I was immediately distracted by the teacher's choice of words. She dictated our shared reality as if negativity were an inescapable prison— For example, I remember her saying, we all stress out during the holidays. 
Well, you do you, I thought, but don't narrate my worldview as if I'm trapped by your worldview. I found her declarations to be presumptuous, inaccurate, and unhelpful, and all coming from the person who was supposed to be our spiritual guide. I suspect she was trying to remind us that we weren't abnormal to feel stress, if indeed we were feeling stress, but I wished for her to say it in a better way. This is how we perpetuate our negative mental loops and cycles, I thought. Then I thought, I am so qualified to lead a meditation class. Like today, like right now. After class, I had another cup of hot tea in the social area, hoping to connect with some other human beings. Alas, no go. This is New York we're talking about here, I thought. People are in a hurry. Yeah, but, I responded to my own self, they're also meditators. In any case, I decided not to feel too put off by what felt like an absence of community and sat in quiet reflection, sipping my tea. I spent the afternoon wandering the city before bussing back to Big Frank's, who wasn't yet home from work. In his quiet, empty apartment, I recorded my first homemade, guided meditation. After uploading the 20-minute video to the internet, I felt like I had somehow accomplished something. You're figuring out how to share what you have to give, said my deepest heart. I knew this was a raw and unprofessional offering, but it also felt so right. I didn't know if anyone would actually watch it, but that didn't feel like the point. Making it and posting it were accomplishments enough, and I let myself beam, if just a little, with pride. A few days and a few meditation classes later, it was time to sit down with Lodro himself and interview for the program. I wasn't nervous in the way I'd been in the past, and would be in the future, when interviewing for paid positions— In applying for a job, I tended to feel like my resume never quite reflected myself, and that I had a lot to prove in a small window of time with strangers who held all the financial cards. When I looked at myself through the lens of a potential employer, I saw an underqualified or overqualified housewife who didn't fit any ratified mold. When I looked at myself through the lens of my deepest heart, I saw a glowing gob of godlight who eschewed the very notion of molds. Here at Mindful, there wasn't a shred of insecurity. I am who I am, I thought. Nothing to hide and nothing to change. I'd already come to peace with the fact that Mindful didn't feel like the resonant spiritual community I'd been hoping for. Their offerings felt close enough to what I'd envisioned, and the timing of their program still felt too fortuitous to pass up. I decided to accept them for what they were and to remain open to the possibility that a community could yet grow. If they accepted me for who I was, it would be go time. Either way, I wasn't worried. Lodro sat with me in a shared space in the front of the center. He asked me about my interest in the program, and I told him the short version of how watching Marshall die had cracked me open. Sometimes when I talk about Marshall, I can see people hearing me. When that happens, it feels like we're plugging into the same electrical circuit. But I couldn't get a read on Lodro. It seemed to me like he was going through the motions of listening, but that he hadn't actually heard me. It is what it is, I thought. I can only speak truth to the best of my ability. I can't make anyone hear me. I asked about potential scholarship programs, but assured him I would find a way to pay the program fees if no such financial aid existed. We shook hands and parted ways, and I felt confident I'd be accepted. About a week later, as I settled back into the Oak Street bungalow and tried to figure out how many suitcases I'd need to pack for a five-month course, I thought to call Big Frank. We had a disagreement. It wasn't dramatic. Nobody screamed, but we came to an impasse, and I realized that I'd have to scramble to find alternate housing from January through May in New 
York fucking city. It felt like doors were closing. And so they were. The next day, I had an email from Lodro waiting in my inbox. Thank you for your application, it started. Uh-oh, outlook not good. Yes, my friends, I had been rejected from the program. Well, fuck a duck, I said out loud, and I thought I had heard Manhattan so clearly. No comment, said my deepest heart, withholding a chuckle. This shit is hard, I complained. No one ever promised it wouldn't be, came the reply. <laughs> 